Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One of the most charismatic comedians I have ever spoken to, Vince Sorrenti, has a smile that seriously lights up a room, a stage and a screen. There's something utterly intoxicating about talking to someone with such an extraordinary and confident skill set. I could have talked to Vince for another hour. He's an absolute joy. My name is Vince Sorrenti and I'm a laughaholic. Were you there when Jerry Seinfeld was still doing small gigs? Oh, I cannot begin to tell you. I just thought, man, my shit does not stink. <laughs> it was really wonderful. It was uh, it's one of the biggest thrills of my life, honestly. <laughs> Laughaholics. Celebrating laughter. Recording in progress. Vince Sorrenti, I'm a little bit excited that we're catching up after so long and look at you. I mean, okay, this is audio, but we will be using the Zoom at some point. I will be using it against you. But you look really fresh-faced and out of lockdown and you've had a haircut and, you know, how dare you look so fabulous? I sneakily have to say I had a haircut during lockdown. <gasps> oh, my God. See, different rules there. You know, up up until recently you had a, a premiere that let you do all sorts of stuff that we weren't allowed to do here. So It's good to be out and about. I wish, you know, the work hasn't really come back yet, but it, it's great to be out and having parties. And, and just being able to see people and all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So... Vincenzo Sorrenti. Yes, I must be in trouble. No, well, you know, we, we were talking recently when I first contacted you and asked you, invited you to be on here. And uh, to, to those people, uh, to everyone listening, I'm in the presence of Australian comedy royalty. And, and I say that with absolute respect, Vince, because you've been entertaining people for well, as long as I've been aware of the comedy scene. And you've just had this incredible longevity. And I've been doing this deep dive, as I normally do before I interview a comedian. And I thought the first thing that really struck me about you is that you've just got the most infectious smile. Your face just uh-huh. lights up. And you just, you're just a really, you know, because a lot of us, you know, look, I've got rest, resting bitch face. Watch, watch, watch this. <laughs> okay, so I have to work hard to look happy because naturally my face just goes, now nah, bugger off. Well, strangely enough, Tracy, I, I like being happy. It, yeah, uh, yeah, funny that. I know it's great, isn't it? Things, the family face and the family smile is something I've inherited. It's, I, I remember my grandmother in her 80s, it just looked like this wretched old thing, but when she smiled, she looked like 25 years old. Oh, it was how gorgeous. an amazing thing. She could really like, she'd be miserable, but when she would like. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we look like, you know. So when we were talking, because you told me that you've just decided to reclaim Vincenzo because you, your parents named you Vince because, you know, a lot of migrants anglicise their kids. Not even Vince, it was Vincent. Oh, like, really? Vincent. Vincent. Sorrenti. Oh, right. But at school it was Vincent and uh, I kind of went with Vince because it sounded a bit more show busy when I started doing comedy, you know, but um, yeah, Vincent was my name right through school and I really like Vincenzo. I love great. Vincenzo. And so you, you're reclaiming it now. You told me you stuck it on your Medicare card. Yeah, well, funnily enough, I've got uh, 
My license says Vince Sorrenti. My passport says Vincenzo Sorrenti. The ATO thinks I'm Vincent Sorrenti. So I can do a lot of sneaky things. But the Yanks are different. Their favourite word is grand. We're great. They're grand. They drive a grand Jeep Cherokee. They've got Grand Central Station, Grand Lakes, Grand Falls, Grand Haven, Grand Prairie, Grand Gorge, Grand Canyon, MGM, Grand Rio, Grand 50, Grand Grand Theft Auto. That's called stealing a car in Punchbowl, mate. Although we do have the Grand Prix here in Melbourne, that's nice. I come down every year for the Grand Prix. Love the Grand Prix, meaning cousins always come down. They all work in the pit crews down here. And uh, let me tell you, no one can get four wheels off a car faster than those lows, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Punchbowl, where you haven't got neighbours, you've got witnesses. <laughs> We're all, all very happy in Punchbowl. We've just won the contract for the new Outback Survivor Series. Bugger North Queensland, mate, that's wussy shit, eh? <laughs> They're going to lock five Americans in a station wagon in Punchbowl with a flat battery. See who gets out of that car first. <laughs> Have a good night, folks. I'm Vince Serrani. Is it true? Because I'm sure you've been asked this, Vince, but I need to know. Are you really from Punchbowl? Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> I've got to tell you, <laughs> I don't know if it's just me, but a comedian coming from Punchbowl tickles me as much as a a porn star coming from Pakenamuppa. And <laughs> as, as someone from Sydney, you probably don't know where Pakenamuppa is, but there is a... I, have, I happen to know where that is. <laughs> and, uh, that wouldn't be a boast. No, but they could have called it Pakenham North. But I, lo- I just love the fact that you come from Punchbowl. I just I love the name and it seems to lend itself to creating the, the character of Vince Sorrenti. But Look, it's just really honest. I mean, and the name Punchbowl really had absolutely no connotations. I only started using it because that's genuinely where I was from. And we've had all sorts of characters and myths emerge about this suburb. And, you know, look, it became even quite notorious in recent years, like drive-by shootings and some, you know, supposed terrorists living in the area. I mean, all sorts of weird things. But uh, Punchbowl was just like this working-class suburb um, in Sydney's southwest. And not too far out, about 20Ks out from the CBD, so not too far. Not even that far out. But, I mean, in those days, I mean, 20Ks out of town was like, you know, might have been in the outback. You know, we we were really on the fringe of the city when I grew up there. But these days... You know, punch bowls kind of like, almost like inner city. I mean, seriously, it's the city has just exploded further southwest in that direction. But it was a really, it was, you know, working class people, a lot of, um, not a lot of Italians, some Italians and Greeks, but it was really um, a lot of bolts, believe it or not, like Estonians, uh, uh, Lithuanians, Latvians. I had my 21st at the Bankstown Lithuanian Club. They know how to party, those people. I love a beetroot. <laughs> it's funny you should say that because I completely unrelated. I bought a bottle of I'm so embarrassed to say this, a bottle of of um, organic kvass um, as a blood tonic, and I, I thought, what who have I become? Seriously, it's, it's the most beautiful red colour. It looks like borscht in a bottle. You're culturally appropriating. Well, I am. I should not be able to take it. So growing up in Punchbowl, was the, was the extended family there? I mean, was the grandma you just told me about, was she part of the family? No, no, no. We were, the, so we were considered like the Westies of the oh. family because, uh, you know, most of the sort of a hardcore old-school Italian community lived in the sort of, the Leichhardt, Canterbury, Marrickville, more towards the city, like probably your Brunswick's or your Footscray's 
equivalent in Melbourne. We were a bit further out. We were kind of like people, but why are you going to live out there? I mean, it was. So why did they? Why did your parents go out there? Uh, because it was like a new housing development. I, I, I saw every house in my street being built. I mean, we were, it was a horse paddock when we got there, and uh, you know, one, you know, it's it's. But now it's like in, in the middle of suburbia. So yeah, we just new homes. Are your parents new- still there? Uh, no, no, they moved out um, oh, probably in the mid-90s into Concord, into one of those areas that sort of where they should have been all the time. <laughs> so did your parents grow stuff in the garden? Did, was your dad a gardener? Absolutely. I mean, there was tomatoes, there was broccoli, there was garlic, there was um, all manner of stuff. I mean, it, the garden was divided into two parts. There was sort of like uh, the lawn. Okay. There was Firstly, there was the, the house. Concrete, lawn, and then market garden. They didn't believe in just having a backyard. You had to get a yield. (laughs) Yes. Even if it was a quarter acre block, there had to be a yearly yield. And I mean, they grew up in the dirt, mate. They grew up farming. I mean, their lives in Italy were. You know, pretty, pretty much the medieval feudal system, you know, like you, 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 you worked for a baron and he gave you a plot of land and you could grow your own food out of that. But uh, they carried that on. You know, so fabulous. Honestly, my, my grandparents who lived in Colston Park, closer to the city, their backyard was like a small farm. They had chickens, they grew peaches, they had rows and rows of any manner of vegetables. They made their own passata. They made their own soap in these huge cauldrons. Get you'd out. go there on a Sunday afternoon and you would come home with like a box. You'd have fresh eggs, you'd have soap, you'd have a, a, a box of fruit. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like living in, in Calabria. Oh, how beautiful. Do you Have you got a veggie garden? I have a pathetic <laughs> Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. My father, who is still with us and still does a bit of, you know, potting around in his garden, he can grow basil out of the cracks in his concrete driveway. Fabulous. I, I'm flat out keeping a lawn alive. Yeah. Every time he comes over, it's just like, hey, what are you growing there? I, with, with a degree of shame, I try and tell him what I'm trying to do. In the yeah. He's got an enormous interest in grown fruit and vegetables. Like he, he comes to the house when he's at and he'll inspect my fruit bowl and he'll have a look at it mm. and he wants to know how much I pay for stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I mean, I live in Bellevue Hill, everything is. Oh, Bellevue front. Hill in Sydney, ow. He'll say, how much was that melon? And I go, oh. Ten bucks. <laughs> Eight dollars. And he goes, <laughs> <laughs> Someone has stabbed him in the heart. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and, and does he do that ironically, or is he? Re- I mean, no, no, he, no, he, he, so. <laughs> <laughs> they came from a very frugal background, so yes. like spending money is the equivalent of like physical pain. Of you know, course. Like, I mean, I, well, I had an accident in my car a couple of years back, and uh, I mean, it's, it's an expensive car, but I got hit in the back. To the casual observer, it looks like just a uh, you know, bumper bar was damaged, but it was $25,000. The dad says, how much would the repairs in your car? Like, oh, I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> I sort of had triple O kind of half dialed on my phone. I said, oh, <laughs> Oh, it was so funny. <laughs> oh, I want to meet your dad. So how was it? I mean, in those days, I wanted to say to him that 
all the Italians, they really loved getting together. That was the really big thing. I mean, these days we kind of do it once a year if we're lucky, you know, it'd be Christmas or Easter. But in those days it was like every weekend, you know, you'd be at someone's house or at, uh, dad's from a family of eight kids, mum's from a family of six. So there was like hordes of cousins and aunts and uncles and you'd always be at someone's place eating, the kids would be running around. But there were like masses of people all the time. If you, if you went to the airport, you would, <laughs> like you know, occasionally people would go back to Italy for a visit, like 50 to 100 people would be at the airport to see you off. <laughs> I'm serious. I love it. And when you came back, like if you'd gone for like two months, three months, they were all there again. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, 50 to 100 people. Oh, <laughs> the kissing and crying, you know. Oh. Unbelievable. That is, I mean. My wife won't even come to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she's happy when you're gone. She's got the house to, to herself. Get a cab or something. You That's know, like, right, yeah. Look, it's so different because my parents were English and just miserable to their core because English people are. I say that as someone who was born in London. Not a happy race. I mean, seriously, look a at lot to be said for it though, Tracy. That stiff up I quite admire it actually. I like the English attitude. Oh uh, no, I, I I think I miss that bit. I mean I just crumble. It's exotic. You know, to me it's like like with the food. Like you, you were talking about, you know, all the food that Italians and Greeks ate. But yeah. we considered and we considered Aussie food quite exotic. Like we would beg mum to grill a chop. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> Sunday evenings as a special treat. Yes. And I'll make, we would have sayo biscuits with cheese and tomato on top. Oh. And I just thought this is, we've just hit a new level of sophistication here. Oh, Vince. I love it. I used to crave it. Whereas now, I mean, I mean, seriously, when I lived on that, I mean, I, <laughs> we had the most terrible food. But the Italians, you've taken over in terms of educating us in, in how to eat and you know, the most beautiful bread and, and the, the most fantastic meats and all of that stuff that we take for granted now. I mean, salamis and things. But were you one of those kids that when you went to school, you would hide your lunch because of your, you were embarrassed? I think I made up that routine, mate. It's been copied by every comic in Australia, but, but that, oh. was, that was my, true, real, my lived experience. Oh. I mean... And salamis that we made at home would be sliced up and put on a you know on a whole loaf of bread. I'd never even seen sliced bread before. But lucky I mean, you, because it's disgusting. It's disgusting. So, how many kids were in your family? How many brothers and sisters? Oh, well, see, now this is another great myth about um, about immigrants. They largely conformed to Aussie family sizes. Even oh. though mum and dad came from big families, they were all born overseas. I had one sister. And of all the relatives in Australia, I don't know anyone who had more than three kids. So they were all small, Aussie-sized families. All Catholic, but all small families. Are you the first or second born? I'm the first born. So you were, like me, looked at through the firstborn lens where yes. every single thing you did was documented and you were compared to – I mean, it's horrible. I mean, oh, look, that, that, look, that happens. Now, I've got four kids, right? And my daughter, uh, God, I've got a four-hour DVD of the first month of her life. Of By course. the time my fourth kid came along, I've got like 
five or six digital photographs of him, whatever his name is. You know, it's but he'll be in therapy for longer, and that's okay. We, we know that. So is your so who was when you were growing up? Your the four of you. So we, there's another parallel uh, parallel with you and me because I have one sister. So it was just the four of us, mum and dad, and the two kids. For us, I mean, we used to, I mean, we had, you know, three or four TV channels growing up and we're about the same age. And so we used to watch Disneyland on a Sunday night. Yeah. Always yeah. watch Disneyland. We used to watch Countdown because, I mean, that was hilarious. <laughs> but my dad used to watch On the Buses, which was a terrible, terrible English show and um, with a guy called Reg Varney. Reg Varney. And Reg Varney had a, his character, I think his name was Stan in the show, and he had a sister called Olive, and she had this horrible straight dark hair parted down the middle. It was really greasy with glasses, and I would walk in the kitchen in the morning and my cockney dad would look at me and go, hello, Olive, how are you? And I was just... <laughs> Devastated, and th- we used to have to watch it, and they would just mock me. I mean, I can't, you know, that's, that's well, English cotton. got a pretty bad rap on TV in those days. I mean, you had Alf Garnet too. Remember that? Terrible. Show? Yes. Yeah. Oh, the, yes. English life just looked like people sitting around some laminex table eating, you know, greasy food and having cups of tea and moaning about life. That's what. That's pretty people. much. But let's throw in the racist stuff like "Love Thy Neighbour." Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. just awful. Yeah. And then because I don't remember seeing any Italians or Greeks on telly. It was all very English, white English, oh, yeah. white, white American. Family. Absolutely. In fact, until Paul Hogan came along and did Luigi the Unbelievable. Of course. First mention, because we, we, we'd watched that religiously and everyone watched the Paul Hogan show. Wasn't it great? He was an Italian character, albeit a send-up, mm. and on Dancing Maria was the sort of, you know, <laughs> and Maria Veneti, who was on the Don Lane show. And, yes, uh, yeah. yes, Maria in her, her magnificent cleavage. She's, yeah. still, she's still going and she still has an out. Yeah, absolutely. She does. Whenever I see a picture of her, I go, wow, there's Maria in her personality. <laughs> um, when you were watching Paul Hogan, did you and your family, did you go, oh, this is great, we're being represented, or no, he's taken the piss? Not, even though I'm a big fan of the Paul Hogan show. I absolutely love the Paul Hogan show. I would cringe enormously. More so the Auntie Jack show because he, he would open, openly use the word wog and he would call people wog lovers. And uh, although I found it funny, it was kind of I'm sitting in a room with my parents who kind of who would have been hurt by that. It would know? have been, must have been very hurtful for them. Hurtful. Yeah. yeah. So what did you watch as a family? Did you have stuff that you could watch as a family? I tell you what was a what was a really big thing and you just don't see it on TV because I, I actually believe that people are, young people are really struggling for comedy on TV. The comedy was very accessible when yeah. I was a kid. Your entire weekend would be full of fantastic old comedy movies. Yes. Abbott and Costello, Martin and Lewis, The Three Stooges, Ma and Pa Kettle. Oh, I love Ma and Pa Kettle. I I mean, I I have literally watched hundreds of hours of comedy. I loved Abbott and Costello. Laurel and Hardy, I mean, um, what was the Talking Mule one? Francis the Talking Mule with Donald O'Connor. I mean, and I'd watch these, I mean, I, I could probably name at least 10 movies from each of those tent poles, you know, and over and over and over again. And there was so much comedy on TV, movies, 
And then later on it became The Goons and Monty Python and The Paul Hogan Show and Benny Hill and just skip comedy after skip comedy. Uh, you don't see any comedy on TV these days. You just don't see it. No. And we were spoilt for choice and everyone laughed at everything. I mean, we were, there was so much to laugh at. And I remember like the Benny Hill stuff because I, I absolutely adored Benny Hill. I mean, Cockney parents, we watched, we watched him religiously. And of course, looking through the, the, the lens of this era, we can see that it was, some of it was inappropriate. A lot of it was inappropriate. But I mean, I. Monty Python was inappropriate. Yes. I recently watched this series about Monty Python, a real sort of, backstage look at the whole python story there were no women involved nope. in, python at all. in fact the guys dressed up as women that's even right in, you know yeah it was, i mean to look at it from a modern frame it just looks like a really sort of not sexist i don't want to say that but just like misogynist narrow-minded view of it was these sort of white english boys private schools you know their view of the world Yes. In essence, although I found it incredibly funny and creative and for me illuminating even. I loved it. I loved it too. Morgan and Wise. I just oh. was one of my very favourite shows. Weren't they beautiful? And variety shows. You had Carol Burnett's and uh, Flip Wilson and it just went on and Flip on. Flip Wilson in the back, in the booth, in the corner, in the dark. Comedy was king. I mean, the, name me a comedy show on TV. Now, Can't. I mean, if you're not trying to get off an island or marry someone or lose weight or renovate a house or cook something, you're pretty much not on TV. And you're not seeing things that made us laugh. And I think for me, watching my parents laugh at, say, mentioning Benny Hill again, or Morecambe Wise, or the two Ronnies, the two Ronnies. Oh, they oh, were fantastic. Weren't they just beautiful? So it was, And it's good night for me. Right. And it's good night from him. I mean, they were just so, so funny. And Ronnie Corbett sitting in that giant chair with his little legs hanging over. But I remember Benny Hill. There's, there's something that I, I, I was a kid and it was him and little Jackie Wright, the one who used to pat on the back of the top of the head. And, um, and Benny Hill was standing there and he's, he's, he's scratching. And little Jackie Wright says, why are you scratching? He said, because I'm the only one knows where it's itching. <laughs> Stupid, but it was just. Listen, and we haven't even touched on the cartoons. Oh, okay. Tell me your favourite. I mean, you know, Foghorn Leghorn and Bugs Bunny <laughs> and all the, all the merry melodies, and that was some of them are like weird and out there, you know, like really push the imagination. Yeah. Remember Foghorn Leghorn and that little smart kid who would be you know, I got an idea, boy. Let's play hide and go see. Foghorn Leghorn goes and hides. In this box, he does all these calculations and gets a shovel and digs a hole nowhere near the box and up comes four. <laughs> and he says, wait a minute, boy. And he goes over to the box and says, uh-oh, I'm not going to open that. I might just be in there. <laughs> <laughs> the kid's mum, Miss Prissy, who used to go, yes. <laughs> 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 yes. 
It was so, so funny. And we were little kids just crying, laughing because, and we Our were. were made for adults. They you know, absolutely they were. were. Yeah. And, and, you know, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and, and just. It, what we didn't realise at the time, of course, was that, that, that whole Bugs Bunny thing, but that was just a send up of America. Of course. Bugs Bunny was the smart aleck guy from Brooklyn. Daffy Duck was the sort of a Hollywood agent. And yes. Timothy Sam was the sort of Arizona sort of foxicker and, uh, you know, Elmer Fudd was the sort of Midwestern hunter. And, uh, you know, Foghorn Leghorn was the southern yokel. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Or the three little bops with the three little pigs. And oh, then, you know, that's honestly... That's one of the greatest cartoons ever, ever made. made. Ever made. I wish my brother George was here. It was so, <laughs> so great. So did you watch Technically any? Technically in a house of sticks built in 1776. <laughs> I can remember some of the words. It, it was, was great. Brilliant. It's yeah. brilliant. And it's still, it's on YouTube. Every so often I watch it with my kid. It's just fabulous. So did you watch any of those things with your family or like me, were you allowed to watch hours and hours and hours of telly on your own? You both. I mean, we watch at night time sort of when dad it's time from work and mum had sort of, you know, done the kitchen and dinner and stuff. We'd all sit, we'd all sit around the, the little bar heater yeah. and watch. And this was a great thing about bringing families together. We all watched the same show. Yeah. So we all had this, we were all experiencing the same thing. Every member of my house has their own bloody TV. Of course. You can never say, oh, did you watch? No, no, I'm watching. No, I'm watching. No, I'm going to go in the other room and watch. You know, it's, there's no... Everyone's on their own. Everyone's in their own bubble, you know. It's, yeah, uh, Eddie Perfect was on the other week and he was saying, you know, he, he will say to his the kids, come on, put your device down, we're going to watch something together as a family because, I mean, that's how we grew up. And my son, we only ever had one television. And when I was doing breakfast radio, I, I would people say, get him his own telly, get him a PlayStation. And I'd say, no, there's only three of us in the house. Why do we need another telly? I've never had more than one telly ever in my entire life because you can only watch one at you can only watch one at a time. Yeah, and my son said to me, he's now 20, nearly twenty seven. He said, "Mum, I'm really glad you didn't get me a PlayStation because I would have just been addicted to it." And he got one himself off, bought one off Facebook Marketplace, and he plays with it with his housemates. But he just said, "I'm really glad I didn't didn't have one growing up." But we used to watch things like The Mighty Boosh together, and he was a teenager, and and a friend of mine introduced us to The Family Guy, and we watched that together. Together. Okay. So to be able to watch things as a family, it, it changes everything, doesn't it? Because then you, you've, you've got to watch Tracy. I mean, see, and I'm, I'm going to make this point again. If you weren't laughing, you weren't watching TV. We yeah. haven't even touched on the on the sitcoms, Green Acres, Beverly Hills, <laughs> the Adams Family. You know, oh. my favourite Marsh. I mean, you could go on and on. I mean, I can still sing the lyrics of all those theme songs. Word for word. I mean, it's, I just loved the. I'd race home from school to watch the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, was, me too. Me too. Get me my drink and thimble. <laughs> I'd come out with this bucket. It was. Weren't we lucky though, Vince? Well, that, that, that's the point I'm trying to make. We had a. We came from a very, very, very rich pool of comedy. Yeah, and the Carol Burnett show, which you mentioned earlier. Brilliant. Saturday nights, and Carol Burnett and Harvey Harvey uh, Harvey Corman. And, um, and and Tim um, Tim Tim Conway, who was Mikhail's Navy. Did you watch Goma Pile? 
Oh, I love Goma Pile. I love Goma Pile. See, when we came to Australia, we lived in uh, in those uh, airport, you know, those um, army barracks that were exactly like Goma Pile. So that's that's what we lived in. And in fact, where I live now in Nunawading, which you mentioned in one of your stand-up things, <laughs> which is actually Indigenous for battleground. So that's no it's no joke that I live there. But that's where I lived when we came to Australia. And we lived there for a couple of years in these terrible. You know, it was army barracks and they looked like airport hangars. And then when we started watching Goma Pyle, I loved it because he lived in a house like me. I was, you know, I was being represented, you know, but it was just, was such a different, different time. So when you, when you, I mean, you went to school and you had a lot of, you know, you, we could all talk about the comedy stuff that we watched at school, but then you end up going to university, to Sydney University to study architecture. What went wrong? Why did that happen? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, you know, when I'm being honest, I went and I studied architecture at Sydney Uni because I thought that would get me into showbiz. Why? Because the architecture review, and particularly the Sydney Uni architecture review, was the closest thing Australia had or, or New South Wales had to the sort of um, Cambridge Footlights in the UK. Uh-huh. We did architecture at Sydney Uni. I mean, Graham Bond, uh, Rory Callaghan, uh, uh, Peter Weir, uh, John Dugan, all Sydney Uni architecture graduates. It was a real tradition to be in the review and architecture obviously creates a lot of, attracts a lot of creative people anyway, but it was a wonderful arena of talented people. Some of the people I did those reviews with are more talented than anyone I've worked with in showbiz in the last 40 years. Honestly, they could have been anything. I learned so much in my six years at Sydney Uni. It was a wonderful experience. Were you at all interested in architecture? I was. Look, architect, there, was another, there was another fit there too, obviously, like uh, with the sort of construction industry sort of heritage of a lot of Italians that came to Australia architecture would be considered sort of the next level to go to. You know, like we, we built the stuff and my son is now an architect. He's designing the stuff, if you know what I mean. There's a bit of a, a natural progression there to be the architect. If was you know your what dad I mean. very proud? He was, but he obviously he's, he, he was always been very supportive, I'll say, without being, you know, not necessarily proud. He wouldn't care what I did. And he always made a point of saying that. He said, look, and mum, you know, they would say, look, look, we don't care if you collect garbage and sweep the streets, honestly. And that's unlike the migrant pressure that was placed on a lot of my relatives and friends who were like, you know, you've got to study hard, you've got to be a doctor, you've got to be a lawyer or an architect or something or other because we worked bloody hard and we came here and we sacrificed and you'd better do that. There was a lot of like that immigrant pressure. And a lot of these kids went AWOL. Like, they just, the pressure was too much and mm. they could But my dad was extremely cool. He said, listen, mate, my, my dad and mum had absolutely no input in my education. The, the only two times they ever came to my place of learning was when I picked up a, a degree, twice. <laughs> well, that's great. And they came to Sydney Uni in 1980. Four, and then again in 1986 to see me in a gown with a flat cap on collecting a degree. Never, it never any other input. 
That's amazing. But also, it sounds like because you had such a loving and supportive family that you really didn't give a fat rat's freckle whether they showed up at uni or not. I mean, you were an adult at that point. It was good. You know, I was making my own decisions. I was making my own way and I sank or swam on the bat of my own efforts. So, um, yeah, I kind of liked it. My kids aren't that – kids just not like that now. I mean – yeah, my kids go to a really my, – my daughter's the school captain at Geelong Grammar, as a matter of fact. So she, she's doing her HSC right now or her VCE. Yeah, they've had, they've had every privilege a kid could possibly have. So. Yeah, but you're supposed to surpass – we're all supposed to surpass our parents. You know, that's, that's the yeah. plan, isn't it? So um, I have to ask, did you really play rugby? Yes. Oh, I, can't, I can't see you playing rugby. No, 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 I just didn't. Look, as I said, my parents had no input into my sort of social or academic life. They um, they never even saw me. They never even came to a rugby. I played rugby league on the weekend, <laughs> and I played rugby for the school, and I played rugby for Sydney University. I yes. played with Peter Fitzsimons and Nick Farr Jones, you know, World Cup winners, and I mean, I obviously wasn't as good as they were, but like I love, I still do. I love rugby. That's amazing. So, did you ever? Because I want to know when you decided that comedy was your thing. Did you ever become? I mean, you got your degree. Did you practice as an architect? I am a qualified architect. I, I designed and built my own house. I mean, we're in the uh, we're in the man cave at the moment, deep underneath my house. Lovely, which is a sort of mock up of my nineteen eighties apartment. <laughs> I come down here for chats and, you know, private work and stuff. But, um, yeah, now, look, architecture is a is a wonderful thing to study and a difficult thing to do. And I, I say that to anyone who doesn't know what they want to do in life, study architecture because, as I previously said, it's one of the only creative things you can do at uni and it really just opens your mind to so many possibilities. The people I graduated with, very few of them actually became architects. There's people in all sorts of really interesting fields. It's a, uh, it's a wonderful thing to study. I mean, it just encompasses, you know, maths and physics and art and history and law, and it's, it's, it's like being in high school again. And, and because it's a small faculty, you go through the years with the same group. It's very tight. I mean, the people I met in architecture school are still some very close friends that I'd pick up a conversation from 20 years ago straight away. It's just, it's a beautiful thing, architecture. I can't recommend it enough. Oh, that's, I love the passion. Was it because you were performing in the architecture review? Was that, was that the springboard to stand-up comedy? Well, it, it was a coincidence. The um, we had just finished a review um, in uh, 1981. It was called the the Kiddies Gala Ball. The KGB it was like a send up of Soviet <laughs> It was fantastic. It was a very very funny show. And uh, at the same time, this restaurant had opened up in the Sydney CBD. It didn't even have a name. They just it was just a restaurant. A friend of mine, uh, a girl who she was friends with, ostentatious, and she said, "Oh, a friend of mine tells me that there's this restaurant has opened up, but people actually get up on stage and be funny." And that sounded just like it sounded bizarre, you know, like no one had ever heard of stand-up comedy. I mean it. She said, "Why don't you come down there looking for performance?" So I went down there and did a couple of bits that I'd written for the for the show. You know, nervous as all hell. I of course. Physically shaking. I was holding my leg on stage. And the first stand-up comic I ever saw was 
the people who were on that night. And Rodney Rood was on. He was the MC. Oh, no. Just and a few others. And uh, <laughs> I loved it. I got I got some laughs. I was hooked from there. And I just became, I would go there every night and work. It was Every uh, night. It was five nights a week. That could never happen now. It just, well, pan- pandemic notwithstanding, but I mean, seriously, it's just so hard to get gigs in Australia in that on that way because we just don't have the population. No, Every night no. you went there. It, look, the comedy, well, it eventually became known as the comedy store. Uh, it was the hot ticket. I mean, seriously, you, on a Saturday night at the comedy store in Sydney, there were international celebrities. I met Raquel Welch there. I met uh, David Hasselhoff there. I met... Uh, the Hoff. Yeah, I met the people who were famous on TV. I met Abigail there. I, it was the place to go. It was the new cool thing, stand-up comedy, you know. So, And it had the Jamison Street nightclub upstairs. So it was just... I mean, I was in cool. I was this kid from Punchbowl and suddenly into this... Cool Nirvana. It was wonderful. And you were still at uni? Still at uni, absolutely. I was in year three. So from year three to year six, four years, I was working as a comic. That's amazing. And those were the real boom times of comedy too. Yep. I mean, seriously, by by sort of 1983, 1984, there was a big comedy room open in Sydney every night of the week. Yep. You could work seven nights. And they were mostly like they were big sort of rock and roll barns, you know. But there was DDs on a Monday night. There was trains on a Saturday night. There was the Ride Hotel. There was oh man, I couldn't I couldn't even name them all. I even recorded an album at one of these suburban gigs. It was just they were huge and packed. You couldn't get in to save your life. There were there were queues around the court. It was. Really sexy. Oh, yeah. I mean, because Melbourne well, I mean, Melbourne had a different scene that started long before I started performing, which was in 89. Um, you know, we had like the Pram Factory and all of those, you know, amazing performers that had gone, gone before us. Like you know, Rod Quantock started off a whole load of places in, in um, Brunswick. He, I can't remember the name of it. Banana Land. My first gig in Melbourne was at the, uh, was in 1984. Three or four. At the last laugh? At the last laugh. What was that room upstairs, the, the Billy room? The joke. The joke. The joke, I yeah. just thought, what amazing atmosphere. It was. At the last, that should be a heritage listed in the memory. I know the building's gone now. Well, it's turned into apartments. Everyone was a waiter there. I mean, everyone in the Melbourne comedy scene was, was, was a waiter. I was a waiter at the comedy store in Sydney too. Of course, yeah. yeah. It was just the most amazing time. I know that at some point you decided to go and live in the States. I didn't decide to go and live there. I was, um, I thought, look, I th- went and sort of threw my hat around there. I, mm. uh, I was friends with Gordon Elliott. Remember Gordon Elliott? He used to host Good Morning Australia on the 10 Network. He was good friends with my manager. I went and visited Gordon in New York yes. in the late 80s. Uh, went back there in 89 thinking, oh, I'm going to have a crack at this um, at the stand-up scene there. So I started doing a few gigs, uh, quite a few gigs. actually. I got spotted by this guy who'd seen me in a video that my manager had sent out the year before and he invited me to audition for this show and it was an MTV show called The Big Blank Show and the, the blank word changed every night. It was the big chair show or the, the big shirt show or whatever it happened to be. And, and was MTV quiet. was brand new and really, really exciting. Well, MTV was only about music um, six or seven years old at the time. It was, it was very sexy. I mean, yes. if you're on MTV, it was like it was hot, you know. Anyway, I got this gig. It was like they were looking for a young comic to host this um, show. And from that point, every comic in New York just hated my gut. 
<laughs> I'd been there for six weeks. Everyone had auditioned for this show, and I couldn't. After that, I could not get a gig anywhere. Like, and they just stopped booking me. They were, oh. Honestly, they were so angry that I had this show for a while. I started getting the gigs again, but I was busy. I was hosting this show four nights a week live across America. And every other night I'd be in Philadelphia or New York or Baltimore or somewhere or Syracuse or doing stand-up in the club. fantastic. Oh, I felt like I honestly, I still remember people recognising me in the street. Hey, it's that guy from MTV. It's the biggest thrill I've ever had in my life. Of course. Because you can really, I've never been a big star in the States, let me highly stress that, but you can just see the, the ladder of stardom in the, and even just to feel those first few steps over there is so fucking exciting. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I cannot begin to tell you how I just thought, man, my shit does not stink. It was really, <laughs> really, it was really wonderful. It was uh, it's one of the biggest thrills of my life, honestly. Were you there when Jerry Seinfeld was still doing small gigs? Oh, yeah, he was still on the stage, yeah. So you got oh, to see him. Jerry's on stage. Um, Norm Macdonald was on stage. Um, who's uh, Ray Romano? Ray, Ray Romano. I used to do gigs with Ray all the From time. Everybody, everyone loves Raymond. Everybody loves Raymond. Um, I, I did a whole season with um, Dave Allen from Home Improvement. He was. He's one of the best stand-up comics I have ever seen. He's very, very good. Season with him in this club in New Jersey called Wise Guys. Really big popular club, and I supported him there for three weeks. He was absolutely hilarious. The whole Home Improvement series that he that show was based on routines he used to do about power tools. Yes. Just mind-blowingly funny. They created a show out of some of out of his routines. He became a very big star, obviously. Yeah, he did. I, mean, I had some great times in the States. Was that Tim Allen or Dave Allen? Tim Allen. Tim sorry. Allen. Yeah, because that's why my jaw dropped because Dave Allen was the Irish guy with the missing finger. Yeah, Tim me. Allen. Yeah, oh, I okay. had a feeling. Yeah, you know, I was going. I wanted to ask you just based on what you were just saying. It made me think of. I'm hoping you've seen it, but maybe you haven't. The marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It was written by Amy Sherman Palladino, who created Gilmore Girls, not shows that men would generally watch. Anyway. Amy Sherman Palladino created this show about this young woman and it's, she stars Rachel Brosnahan. She's, she's extraordinary and it's set in the 50s so the, the costumes alone are just swoony but nothing is as it seems and it's so incredibly written and so I went down the Google rabbit hole because I thought there's got to be, she must have known a comedian to have cre- created this this whole incredible life. Oh, is this the woman that becomes a comic? Yes. 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 My wife has seen a bit of it and she told me to watch it. I've got to see it. Watch it with her. Watch it with her because it's it's so it's so beautifully written and so beautifully crafted. It's about her journey of becoming a stand-up comic in 1958. It's, in a way, it's the Phyllis Diller story. Phyllis Diller yes. was a, a housewife, mm. sub- mother of five kids yep. who just at, at age 38 just said, suddenly I'm going to be a comic and had this deadbeat husband. Yeah, bang. <laughs> and she became a megastar. In the she city. did. She I, did. I, I did a massive tour of Australia with Phyllis Diller. Well, I opened for her at the Melbourne Hilton. I did like, I don't know, two weeks of gigs, but she was, she was incredible. Yeah, 
Brilliant. She was incredible. Uh, unquestionably one of the best comics I've ever seen. Oh, and the timing. The, the timing. Time. It was so great. It's an hour of one-liners, everyone a killer line. Everyone. And how far ahead of her time was she? I Decades. Mean, like, she was. Seeing that she was doing like in the 60s, yep. you know, the whole sort of feminist and sort of like, uh, it was very good. She was provocative in a gentle way. Yes, she wasn't nasty like Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers, who hated everybody. But the reason I wanted to mention Rachel Brosnahan in Mrs. Maisel was because Amy Sherman Palladino, who wrote it, she wrote it about her father, Don Sherman, who was a stand-up comic in the 50s. She had all of these stories that he told her about doing the clubs. And, of course, it was, you know, 99% men. And so she decided to create the show about a woman trying to break into – and, look, it's still very much – I mean, the world's changed a lot, but it's still very much a boy's I'm club. I'm going to speak that out, Tracy. That sounds really good. Because I the, think you'd all, love all it. All the stand-up comics of that sort of late fifties, sixties year did. Most of them were men. Yeah. And most of them went to LA, and most of them got positioned in in sitcoms. Even like Hogan's Heroes was yeah. all. Those guys were just all the popular stand-up comics of the time. In fact, the biggest comic of that was um, was um, Clink. Was uh, Colonel Clink. Colonel Clink <laughs> from Hogan's Heroes. Yeah, and he he was the. <laughs> He was a big stand-up comic of the time, but, of course, Hogan and Schultz kind of overtook the show as being the most popular. But Clink, when you think about it, he really makes the show. I he- know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You're not like, how's oh, so good to see you? Clink. <laughs> <laughs> it was so, so funny, wasn't but it? All really? those shows came from... Stage guys. Yeah. Guys, unfortunately, mostly. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Standout women too. You had your Carol Burnett's and your, and your Lucille Balls. Oh, and your- Lucille. And wasn't she a trailblazer? Because, I mean, she was the first female yeah. producer. And, I mean, the reason she cast Desi Arnaz in the show was because he was such a philanderer that she had to keep him nearby because he just he just couldn't keep it in his pants. So, seriously, that's the truth. She just kept, it was, she always had to make sure there was a, a role for him in the show so that he had to be on set. Brilliant. Well, it didn't work. didn't work. <laughs> but, but, you know, I was just thinking when you were talking about the, the shows that were full of men, like you think of the Dick Van Dyke show oh, and, yeah, and, yeah. and Morrie Amsterdam and Rose Marie, and they were, they were fantastic comic actors. And then, you know. Tyler Moore, who was his wife. Mary Tyler Moore. Another decade. I mean, she was a real trailblazer as well. She really was. You just didn't see, you didn't see shows with women as stars. And then, of course, you know, that was, it was around the same time, wasn't it, Murphy Brown and those sorts of things. But, I mean, really, really great people. And we're not, we're not seeing it. So what are you watching now? What are, you, is, are you watching anything that's blowing your hair back in terms of comedy? No, I, I, I'm kind of like, um, I look, Morning Wars has been really <gasps> good. How great is that with Jennifer Aniston and... I was telling Carl Stefanovic about the other day, he refuses to watch it. I mean, it's, I said, <laughs> I wouldn't watch it either. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's very, it's amazingly... Steve Carell, Steve Carell, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. It, it really is. I think it's one of the most extraordinary things I've seen in the last couple of years because a departure for both Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell, who are both extraordinary comic performers in their own way, but... Brilliant, brilliant actors. It's so... Production is... The values are so high in the production. It really is amazing. It's incredible. I generally don't like 
series. I like something to have a beginning and an end. And, um, you know, I, I just feel like the whole streaming genre uh, has created this sort of like never-ending boring show, becoming incredibly more and more boring. They slow things down. Like, I, for example, House of Cards, which was I thought was brilliant, season one, season two. Even season three was pretty good. And then the, you could just see them slowing it down. I mean, yeah. like, the whole of season four goes, what, three months or something, you know. I can't watch a show now unless it has an ending. If it's a set eight episodes in, in one season and it ends, great, I'll watch it. But if something's just going to go on forever... I'm not going to let you suck me in, you know. I'm um, very aware of the time and the fact that you've got a meeting to go to because, you know, we could keep talking for another hour and a half. But I want to say to anyone listening that Vince Sorrenti is not only comedy uh, royalty in this country, but one of the busiest performers in this country, does over 200 gigs a year, is one of the preeminent MCs in this country. And um, the number of gigs I've lost out to you, I can't remember. But it's because you're so, so good at it. And if you get the chance to see Vince Sorrenti in any form, you must and Vince, I'm just so grateful to. Oh, you're, you're too kind, Tracy. And can I can I urge anyone who's listening or watching to uh, to go to a show, you know, to yes. get out and watch some stand up comics and yep. and to not feel like a comic is trying to assail you. You know, yes. we're, we're just trying to make people laugh. We're just trying to make you laugh. That's we're right. Comments. We're not trying to hurt anyone. No. Well, some, some of them are, but they don't last because we do it because we genuinely love people and we genuinely love human idiosyncratic behaviour and that's what we zero in on and it's it's just the best job in the yeah. world, isn't it? Yeah. It really okay is. to laugh at some things, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Vince Sorrenti, thank you so much. And if you want that's more information. Fine. It's been a joy talking to you. A thank joy you. to you too. Lots, lots of love, Vince. Arrivederci. As we all know, podcasts are free to listen to, but they are certainly not free to create. The following extraordinary people have contributed their amazing talents to create Laughaholics, and I wholeheartedly recommend their businesses. Laughaholics audio production, editing and imaging, brilliantly executed by Daryl Misson. The Laughaholics logo was created by Rick Plumridge at Ricochet Graphics. The Laughaholics show theme was lovingly composed by Steve the Bastard, and for more information on the Laughaholics experience as a professional development tool, please go to tracybartram.com.au where you'll see my new website. Thank you so much to NME Digital for their amazing work. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Laughaholics. Celebrating laughter.